All right. So Ryan made the uh, very big mistake of asking me to help and participate in this um, talking about church history. Um, I went ahead and I, I looked and I saw that um, Andy and Serlio over the past couple of weeks um, got their full you know, 40, 45 minutes talking about roughly 100 years worth of history, and I'm talking about 400 years, so I think I get, what is that math, like, like 300 minutes or something like that? Is that? Okay. I think that, I think that adds up. So today, I am talking about what is um, named kind of the, the Middle Ages, or at least even the first part, or not even covering the whole thing. I think uh, Middle Ages Part 2 is, is next time. And covering the years of roughly 800 to about um, 1274 is what we're looking at today. Um, some have kind of labeled it excuse me, the, the Dark Ages, but um, there's actually a lot of stuff that's happening. Um, there's a lot of, of stuff, not all of it good. I mean, obviously, some of it's bad. Some of what we're going to talk about today is the, the, uh, the Crusades. We're going to talk about um, a few different, or the rise of what's called um, uh, monastasy or, or the monastic orders, which is just kind of a fancy term for saying orders of monks. Um, I know you're familiar with that term, monks. We're going to talk about some of the, the circumstances and, and beliefs that started leading to the, the split, or what we call the, the schism, between the Eastern um, Greek-speaking um, churches and the Western Latin-speaking churches, and how that separation uh, continued and, and, and grew over time. Um, as I mentioned, a little bit about the Crusades, and going to try and get to um, a few of three, actually, of the big um, names in some of early church history, um, some early church theology. So let's just jump into that. Um, looking first, we're going to look at some of the develops, developments happening in the West at the time. So immediately preceding this time that we're looking at is, is the fall of Rome. I bring that back up because it's important in what happens next. At the beginning of this time, we start seeing that, what I mentioned, that, that rise in the monk orders, rise in, in monasticism. That's important because at this time, uh, a lot of people were, I, I kind of see, I say it as um, seeing the, the dirty laundry aired, right? They're seeing the, the underbelly uh, of what's, what's happening, and, and they didn't like it. Uh, and basically, they're, they're seeing all this stuff crumbling, um, some of the, the, the wrong things that were going on, and they, they're saying, I need to just run the other direction. Like, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to look like that. We need to go a different way. And so they started uh, um, congregating together and, and building these, these orders. And also the developments in the West, looking at the, the beginning of the, the Holy Roman Empire. And so with those, um, those monk orders... In running away from what they were seeing, they wanted to basically um, gather together, um, some in seclusion, some not so much, but the idea was they wanted to, to gather together with like minds and work diligently at refraining from worldly living, um, refraining uh, very, very specifically from sin, right? Not that, not that all Christians weren't hopefully trying to, to do that, but very specifically and, and, and targeted, um, trying to, to live a life of, of avoiding and, and running away from sin. And they were also trying to avoid the pursuits of pleasure. Basically, the idea of, of anything that wasn't 
progressing them towards God um, wasn't worthy of their time. They, they wanted to uh, eliminate those kinds of things from their life. They weren't all exactly the same, though. And they, they all had some of these goals, but each order, if you look more specifically, they would devote their lives to certain practices or had certain beliefs or, or goals that they wanted to accomplish. Three of the big ones of this time, um, one of which is what we call the Cistercians, okay? It's just a, just a name, um, just to kind of place in there in your mind. Um, a notable person from this order that we'll talk about later is uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, they were a group that, uh, as opposed to some of the others that you might think of as, as stereotypical monk orders, they didn't remove themselves from society so completely. They actually, because their goal was they wanted to, as opposed to removing themselves to be able to, to live this life uh, free from worldly sin, free from pursuits of pleasure, they wanted to add that into society. They wanted to be a part of, of molding that into society. So they actually sought a lot of political reform. And they actually, um, something that, that I found um, uh, quite humorous to me was they were known for confronting um, any bishops or, or abbots or, or church leaders that they saw as um, doing wrong or, or living in, in poor content, conduct, excuse me. And so they would, they would basically um, um, just, just call people out. I had the thought of, oh, what was that show called? Um, was it, what would you do? Where they had like like they set up the hidden cameras and they have these like social situations going on and it's like would you help this person or not and then I can't remember the guy's name that ran that show but he would come out and be like well why didn't you like help this you know and I mean they just get called out in front of everybody like oh you're not living the life you say you're living um, one other piece uh, uh, about them so kind of prior to our time there were two big um, two big names that kind of set up some, some rules of life. There was St. Benedict and St. Augustine. Um, I just mentioned this briefly because a lot of monk orders, uh, will, you'll hear, will be talked about as like a, a Benedictine movement or, or Augustinian order. And they just essentially put together what you call, um, they call their rules um, of life and, and, and how to pray, how to, how to do some of these things. And so the monks would basically follow and apply some of these rules to their lives. And the Cistercians were a, a Benedictine order. One of the other big ones, um, a name some might recognize, uh, is the Franciscans. They kind of modeled themselves around uh, a person named St. Francis, Francis of Assisi. These people were known as uh, the Gray Friars for the, the cloaks that they wore. Um, all kind of matching. I think they wanted just to, you know, have like a, a you know, a group outfit. Um, I, I think gray was just the color of the time, so that's what they were going for. But these are the ones that I would say are the more stereotypical monks. See, these were what we call a mendicant order, which once again is just kind of a, a special word, meaning that they believed in that, that life of poverty. These are some of the ones that took the, the vows um, of, of celibacy, took the vows of poverty. They weren't uh, allowed to, to own anything. If anything was given to them, it was subsequently I mean, given to others or given to the order as a whole. It was Nothing was theirs. Nothing was theirs. The robes on their backs were even you know, just essentially borrowed from, from the order itself. And then 
they became very concerned, kind of like what I was talking about with the, the rise of the orders, they became concerned with the, the pride of, of the leadership. Once again, looking at what they, they saw them doing, um, the, the heightened, the, the grandiosity, um, some of what you would, I believe, think of uh, like from the Pharisees, some of those ideas, um, they saw that, and you can see in their response to it that they, they ran away from that. They were like, I don't want to be tempted into anything resembling what they're doing, so I need to avoid all of it. I, I have to completely, completely swear it off. I have to uh, avoid any possessions because I don't want those things to even have a chance of ownership over me. I don't want them to even have a chance of of pulling me down into a life I don't want to be in. And they were also um, very concerned and, and known for evangelizing to Muslims. The last of the orders we'll discuss today, and once again, just kind of not, there were, there were many others, others continued to rise, but these are just three of, of some of the big ones of the time, uh, were the Dominicans. A famous name, once again, that we'll kind of talk just a moment about later, uh, that belonged to this order was Thomas Aquinas. They were considered an Augustinian order, um, the name I mentioned earlier. And they, their thing, if you will, was that they were all devoted to preaching and teaching. Um, they believed that it was their mission as an order to basically uh, equip um, others, equip Christians, equip the church with the information that they needed, teaching and preaching and basically building up that base. They staunchly um, defended Catholic orthodoxy or, you know, their, their belief system, their theology. And an interesting piece of information is they would later on be placed in charge of the Inquisition. So, looking at, um, once again, uh, the big chunk of today, I see it as, you know, looking at the, the East and the West. Um, the monk orders the beginning of the, the Holy Roman Empire being built up um, is, is what was going on in the West. So we'll transition to the, to the middle of this, which is the, the schism. Um, so we're talking about the East and the West. <clears throat> and there were several things that led to this schism, several things that started basically um, wedging be, between these, these two churches the, uh, or these, these two groups, if you will, of, of churches. One of which, obviously, uh, would be political in nature, would be politics. See, excuse me, um, the West, after the, the fall of Rome, after the fall of, of Constantine and, and his children, and everything is, is crumbling down, um, the West, and I believe, I wrote it down, and I don't believe it's in your notes, I believe it was Pope Leo III, um, they crowned at this time Charlemagne. Uh, starting basically a, a new empire. They um, did this, however, without the agreement of the East. See, they leaned on their tradition and their history of kind of being the, the seat of power. They were um, kind of the home of, of Constantine, um, Theodosius, Justinian, and they believed that, that crowning Charlemagne was kind of a, a slap in the face because that's, that's not what they would have done. They were um, that seat of power. But um, after, like I said, after that fall, it was kind of an opportunity um, for the West. And they believed they inherited that reign um, with the crowning of Charlemagne. 
also in regards to politics, it'll come up again later, but um, it's believed that it was kind of a political and, and financial matter that during the, the Fourth Crusade led to the raid and, and sacking of Constantinople, which understandably was kind of the, the cementing and, and deciding factor in, in, okay, we're split. And Constantinople being kind of like the, the, the capital of, of the East, and, and which is understandable. It's kind of like the idea of, you know, you have a bad breakup, and, and you go over to, to the person's house, and you want to make up, and you, you want to consider getting back together, but you get over there, and you find that they've, you know, piled all of your stuff in the yard and set it on fire. So, yeah, the, it's done. You're moving on. Not only politics, but also um, culture and linguistics. Nothing uh, specific of note other than um, if you've ever heard the phrase, like, if you're not growing together, um, you're growing apart, is basically what I see is happening here. Um, you have two groups of people who, um, two groups of churches who were working together, but if you think about the, the size of, of the area that they're talking about, um, it, it's, it's vast, geographically different, different people, different cultures, and as they continue through time, they, they basically go apart. Um, some of these little things, you know, probably add little tears in there. Um, some of the big things add big tears. But, but ultimately, they're growing apart as, as cultures, as, as people. And if you don't have that intentional unity, then it's, it's easy to, to separate when those things come up. Another big issue was the papacy, which is um, the, uh, the office of authority of the pope. And there was a big disagreement here. You see, the West... They believed that the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, uh, was the ruler of the church. They cited this on um, Matthew 16, was one of their, their big um, uh, pillars, basically, of, of this belief. They say that Jesus gave um, the keys of the kingdom to Christ, or excuse me, gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter, and his successors, which is, is the, the line of popes, um, are the ones to, to hold that. They're the ones to be the leaders of the church, to, to preside over the church. The East had a big problem with this. They um, believed that the emperor was the one to rule the church. And, and once again, you're going to see that this is, this is, with the East, this is kind of their thing, that they leaned on tradition. Like, this is how we've been doing it. They believed that the emperor, um, when church doctrine needed to be changed, when questions needed to be answered, he would call the um, ecumenical councils. He would call the basically different um, uh, leaders from around the churches to come together and they would settle questions, settle answers. And if, um, if he's the one that's been calling them together, then, then he's the one that's been responsible for so much of their church theology and their, their church history. They also kind of refuted um, the West leaning on Matthew 16. They said Matthew 16, 18. Um, really refers to anybody who shares that confession of Peter. So, so him um, saying, you know, that you're the, the, the rock on which we build the church, they're saying anyone who would say the same things that Peter said, anyone who would say um, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is, is a part of that group. So it doesn't have to be this, this one person uh, over it all. 
And there was a, a theologian by the name of John Mandorf who kind of summed up this disagreement, saying that it can all come down to whether faith uh, depends solely on Peter or whether Peter depends on faith. A couple other uh, issues that, that they um, had between each other. The West, um, something you might be familiar with, uh, insisted on celibacy for their, pre- or for their priests. Um, so if you were a priest of the church, you were, were celibate. You were um, not allowed to be married up to the point that some that came into priesthood who had already been married earlier in life, they would require dissolutions of the marriage. The East not only allowed their priests to be married, but they had a staunch disagreement with the dissolution of of marriage, that breaking of marriage um, for coming into the priesthood. Um, A couple of the the big uh, item notes that I think are, are to me, at least were most most relevant uh, to me even today, one of which was the the talk of, of icons. So the, the early Christian church as a whole um, had a, a general rejection of icons. They didn't want um, to lean into idolatry. They didn't want to, to go that direction. But in the Eastern churches, there was kind of like a, a gradual and, and some up and down uh, acceptance of icons. They started um, you know, bringing them into churches, and they started um, uh, making them a part of, of traditions and rituals. Like I said, there, there was a back and forth, but it kind of settled into an accepted norm in a couple, what we talked about, those kind of those ecumenical councils, what we called the, the Council of Nicaea, and there was a Council of Empress Irene, which basically I just say those two names just to cement in your mind that there was these two gatherings, these two times that they got together to talk about, okay, how do we handle this issue, and both of those meetings... Um, they, they favored and, and accepted the use of, of icons and tradition in churches and, and bringing it as a, as a part of um, their, their church lifestyle. Um, but the West, despite this up and down going on in the East, uh, remained staunchly uh, against it. They, they cited it as idolatry. But I found um, interesting, there's one quote in your guide if you have it, and so uh, I, I welcome you to read that. But one that isn't, um, I want to say just a few words from. Uh, just as the person who venerates the sacred words in the gospel, so just as, as we place a lot of importance on, on the word of God, is not honoring parchment pages, but the holy teachings themselves, so in these pictures of the church, we are not venerating the color or the material, the surface, but kind of a holy explanation and concise description of his sufferings. Um, so not about like taking a stand on it, but I, I found that as a very interesting view and, and um, a, a point on the matter that, that I hadn't really heard is, you know, he's arguing that, you know, just as, as I hold the words of the Bible sacred, but I, it's not that I care about... Um, this one book that I have, but, but the words of God, he's saying, I don't care about this picture or, or, or this piece of paper. I care about the message that I receive from, from looking at it. Um, another big one is what's con, uh, called uh, kind of the, the trouble surrounding the filioque. Um, once again, I think that is in your handout. 
The Nicene Creed said, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, with the Father and Son, he is worshipped and glorified. That was settled. That was something that they agreed on. It was a part of their theology, settled in um, 381. So later on, in in 589, the Western Church um, affirms an addition to that. Uh, There were some teachings from St. Augustine that kind of... um, propped up this idea, and, and, and they decided to go forward with it, and they added filioque to this Nicene Creed, which is uh, a word that just means, and the Son. And so they changed it from what you see on your paper to, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and the Son, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. The East had, had a big problem with this, and I think see it as two, two big reasons, one of which is they're They're like, you can't just unilaterally change our theology. Like, we need to talk about this. Um, We need to have have a discussion, right? Um, You know, we have to uh, agree that this is a good thing to do. But they, um, on their own, decided to change an important piece of doctrine. And the East saw this not only as like, oh, you shouldn't have done this. You should have talked to us. But they see what they settled on as false teaching, as, as leading to... Um, to uh, poor beliefs. See, they don't like that the Holy Spirit was placed as subordinate or, or lesser than um, the Son and the Trinity with this, this addition. So once again, just more and more things you can see are, are stacking up um, between them. So we have um, the West. Things going on in the West is the building of the Holy Roman Empire, um, the monk orders are uh, growing and expanding. The schism between the two, all the way up to the, the sacking of Constantinople. And then um, we can talk a little bit about some of the Eastern um, distinctions that they have, some of the theology in, in their beliefs. One thing um, that, once again, I, I, I do find interesting is they believed in what they called the, the way of negation. So where we... Um, often today I hear talked about um, God as, as omnipotent, right? All-powerful. Um, omniscient, meaning he's, he's all-knowing. He knows everything. Um, they wouldn't use words like that. They said God is unlimited. He is, is uncontainable. And they even had this phrase that they called him the unfathomable mystery. He is basically this... I see it as them calling him not just this perfect being, but this being of such vastness and greatness that that we can't comprehend. And so they would say calling him all-powerful or or all-knowing is still, in a way, putting a, a, a box, putting constraints around him. Saying that God knows everything is, in a way, for them still saying that he has limits because he knows all that there is. But they say, we can't grasp it, we can't figure it out, it's not for us to understand. And they believe those are important distinctions, that that what we say matters, how we talk about God matters, and and we need to to pay attention to those things. They also, um, once again, this is kind of their thing with tradition, they lean very heavily on what we call patristic testimony, which is the, the teachings of the, the early church fathers, the teaching of some of the early church leaders. Um, it was very important um, for them that that's included and a part 
of their church beliefs and theology. To the point, though, um, that some of them even said that, you know, our, or said that their, excuse me, um, that their teachings, their beliefs should be based on uh, the combination and, and where, uh, in the agreement um, between Scripture and this patristic testimony, this, this teachings of the early church fathers. They um, talked about them in very close equal terms. They also um, believed in what they called the, the Pentarchy, five. Um, as opposed to that Western position on the Pope is overall, the Pope is, is over the church. I mentioned a couple of times that term, the ecumenical councils. And so they believed in these, these five um, big areas and, and leaders from them coming together and basically having an agreement on, on things, having discussions and, and coming to a decision on topics. So they believed it was the cooperation of the councils of Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Alexandria that all need to be involved, which further cements that you can understand the, the difficulties they would have um, on things like the filioque. Like this is how we do things. We, we come together and we talk about it. One person can't decide for me that, that I need to, to change how I believe or change how I say this creed. Um, one other big thing of uh, one other big thing in their beliefs um, was the idea and belief behind deification. Uh, it was this idea of us um, becoming like God. That that idea of deification, dia meaning meaning God, us being made into Him, but with a, a very distinct um, caveat that. We are not becoming God himself, but they said we are, we are deified through our journey, meaning um, we are made more like God. Timothy Ware um, described it as we become by grace given us what is God, or what God is, excuse me, by his own nature. Um, looking more like him, looking more Christ-like, if you will. But one, um, while this was a very widespread and common belief. It was actually not something that is thought to have been taught in the ecumenical councils and not something that was um, uh, officially decided on but became a part of their, their culture. So, um, we have the, the West, the rise of Holy Roman Empire and the monks, we have the schism between the two, we have the theology of some of the East. One of the other big things that happened in this time period, as I mentioned, was the Crusades and the rise of Islam. So, um, Islam arose from Muhammad in the 7th century, and they stand on the five pillars of Islam. Uh, profession, which is they have to profess that there is one God, Allah, and Muhammad was his greatest and last prophet. Excuse me, the um, pillar of prayer, which is that they do their five daily prayers um, mandatory. It's a part of their culture. It's necessary. Um, the pillar of almsgiving, which is that they should be giving regularly. Um, the pillar of fasting, which is observing Ramadan. And the pillar of pilgrimage, which is that at least once in their life, um, they need to make that, that pilgrimage to Mecca. And this um, Islam quickly spread and, and quickly was, was, was taking over 
um, that area of the world. And it's widely believed that if it wasn't for a couple of, of big key defeats that um, they had in, in some battles, that it could have taken over you know, all of that area of the world, all of Europe. Could have been a very different world today, um, as they see it, if they, if they hadn't lost those battles. Speaking of battles, um, was the Crusades. So the Crusades um, was a campaign to take back the, the Holy Lands. I'm sure uh, most of us have at least heard about it. It was the Latin Christians, those of the West, um, against what's called the, the Seljuk Turks. It comes, the word crusade um, comes from the word quasse, which is to be signed with the cross. And, and if you've ever seen uh, pictures of the time or uh, you know, drawings of the time, uh, they had the um, cross stitched into uh, their garments. One of the things that um, was the uh, recruitment campaign slogan, if you will, for the Crusades, is that they were promised either, if you go on the Crusades, either you die and, and you're a martyr and, and you're loved and you're remembered and you're in heaven, or if you make it back, you are granted an indulgence, which is basically um, them saying you have a, a blanket forgiveness for, for everything that, that you've done wrong. You know, they believed, um, even outside of the Crusades, they believed in indulgences, those things that um, if you go and you confess your sins, um, you have that, that forgiveness of guilt, but you do these things, um, you know, the... Um, I feel like I'll, I'll be stereotypical if I, if I give any examples. So well, the, the priest would provide this thing for you to do, and if you did it, it was an indulgence, and, and you were, you know free of that. That, that. that didn't happen. Um, and so they were promising um, a, a blanket indulgence. If you go on the Crusades, anything you've ever done in your life, anything you do from now up until you get back, anything you do in the Crusades, before you have to leave, it's all forgiven. And so some people uh, jumped at that opportunity. Um, some have used the Crusades as an argument uh, against Christianity, citing some atrocities that, that happened as, you know, why would you, you follow uh, a religion that basically put forth this, this war, this um, dark thing that happened in history. And I bring it up, I, I mention it, just because sometimes we have to be prepared to be able to address that thing, because some people do look at it that way. Um, but basically... I think there's, you know, if you talk about an agreement and, and consensus that um, in being prepared to talk about that, we, we have the knowledge that we cannot um, confuse uh, people that were fighting for a worldly kingdom with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We can't confuse the, the sins uh, of these people um, with the entirety of, of what Christian teaching is. And so, uh, the last part of today is there were three, um, there were many, uh, excuse me, there were, there were a lot of, of early Christian teachers, early Christian theologians, um, people that kind of uh, built on, on where we are today. But there are three that we'll go over today, um, one of which is um, Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury. He was Italian. 
Um, and after his father died, he crossed the Alps and joined a monastery. He actually later became um, an archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury. And one of the things we look at from him is the proslogion. It's considered the great chartal, char, excuse me, charter of the medieval Christian philosophy. And he was one that was all about, um, all about reason. He, I think he um, you know, saw, saw beauty in the mind that we are given from God to be able to work out logic, to be able to reason. His, his charter, the proslogian, is considered um, a priori. It's um, all from reason, basically meaning um, it's not... It's not examples that I see. It's not facts that, that I do or you know, experiments that, that prove my point. It's because I have been given this mind from God, I can use my mind to reason out answers. He was the one that put forth what we call the ontological argument of God's existence. Um, I'm going to be honest. I, I have, I took philosophy in my undergrad years, and I remember this, and I, I dove into it again when I was preparing for this, and this one is a little bit strange to me, but um, he put forth the argument for God's existence is based around the idea that he is the greatest conceivable being, that he is the, I don't know how you would put it, like the, the peak, the perfect uh, existence. And if we, using our God-given mind to be able to reason, try to think about um, the greatest conceivable being, the, the perfect existence, and we were to think of it as something, excuse me, that is imaginary, something that does not exist but is just this ideal being, then it really isn't the perfect being. Because a perfect being would be something that is all of those things and does exist. And so, thereby, if I think about the greatest conceivable being, and he must be real to be that perfect being, then he must be real. So, you've all got it. You can all go use that argument now to defend us. Another thing he's known for um, that I find a lot more uh, interested in is Curdius Homo, Why God Became Man. He basically um, puts forth that uh, some things that we even talk about is that um, he puts forth that we were created uh, for a life of, of happiness and, and peace. But there is sin in the world. So there is sin in us. We can't have that life of happiness and peace. And we can't have it here on earth. So to have that life of happiness and peace, we have to get to the afterlife. But we can't get to God's afterlife. We can't get to heaven with that sin. So someone has to pay for that sin. Someone has to um, wash that sin away. No one can do it but God, but no one should do it but us. So basically, it's our debt. It's, it's man's debt. It's human debt. So God has the, the power and the perfection to do it. Man doesn't. So there needed to be what he calls a God-man. There needed to be a human with the perfection of God to pay that price. And so his thing was, as we said, you know, putting forth explanations, putting forth proofs through reason. And he really believed in conveying the extremes of sin, the, the depth of, of sin and, and the perfection of Christ. So the second of three was Bernard 
of Clavo. Um, and his big thing was, um, while being in a world of, of theologians, of people talking about, you know, that, hey, this is how we prove God, this is how we do this, um, he seems to all be about, um, this is what I'm experiencing in loving God. He talked about the four levels of love. He said, and, and in increasing order, there was loving ourselves for ourselves, natural love, you know, look out for ourselves, doggy dog world, however you want to phrase that. He believed if you got above that, you learned to love God for ourselves. Basically, we recognize that there is God, and we want him in our life because of what he can mean to us, because of what he can provide us. Above that is loving God for God. Basically, loving him because of who he is, not because of what he gives us. And above that, something he called unachievable was loving ourselves for God. And he said God himself is the reason why he is to be loved. And in the, um, in, in the documents that we went through, kind of the, the layout, uh, the, the writer put forth that he believes he's a good example of Psalm 34.3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And lastly, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it done. Lastly is Thomas Aquinas. And his big work was what we call the Summa Theologica, the, the, the sum of theology. As a Dominican priest, as I mentioned earlier, he had that mind for, for preaching and teaching. And so he came up with this work that was intended to be a teaching document for, for early students, for beginning people studying this. <clears throat> um, one of the things he put forth was what we call the five proofs. So other, as opposed to the ontological argument, so these were five um, things that, that he believed were the proofs of God. He believed in um, the proof of motion, which is basically the idea, um, you, you may have heard, you know, like, um, uh, was it Newton's laws of physics, a, a body in motion remains in motion, and all those different kinds of things. Um, he's basically saying that something cannot be moving unless it was moved. There is potential energy, there's kinetic energy, something can't be in kinetic energy, it can't be moving, it can't transition from those two types of energy unless it was moved. Unless I shoved this computer, it's not just going to jump off, off of the desk. So, he uses that as, as reasoning, and, and if you look it up, there's you know, multiple steps, and you can follow it through, and it's A means B means C, so on and so forth. But basically what he's saying is, because we are in motion, because the world is in motion, because the galaxy is in motion, the stars and the planets are moving, because there is motion, there has to be a mover. And if you track back, something has to be the first mover. Something has to be outside of our laws uh, of nature, and that must be God. He believed the law of, of efficient cause, basically cause and effect. Um, if there is an effect, something caused it. Once again, and he just takes these things that, he, that we can see, that we can um, even, even prove in, in science that are, that are laws of science, and he takes them to the conclusion that if there's cause and effect, there must be a first cause to have any effect, and that causes God. He said um, possibility and necessity, which is talking about some things are necessary in life, some things are contingent. Um, everything that we know is contingent, basically meaning it has the possibility of not existing. Um, I have the possibility of not existing, uh, I can die, I can be gone, you can burn that chair, you can do this. Um, all things that we know about have the possibility of not existing. They cannot come from nothing. There must be something that is necessary. There must be something that is, has to be there, and that is God. 
Um, gradation, which is um, some good to no good to perfect good. If there is any idea of good, there must be a perfect good, and that is God. And the law of design. These things work as they should work. Um, it, you can, uh, I think one of the big... Um, examples of this is some people use the idea of the watchmaker. Um, this thing is here. It is working. It is together. Somebody had to design it. Um, lastly, almost done, he said the four laws. Um, there's another thing he put forth in Summa Theologica. He said there is the eternal law, which is the law of how the, the heavens work, how everything is moving. There's divine law, which is what God gave us in, in Scripture. There's natural law, which is... Um, us and, and how we work and reason, and there's human law, which is human law, what we put forth to, to run societies. And he also, um, one of his big things was putting forth sacerdotalism, which was that priests are necessary mediators between man and God. And so, um, once again, just, just summing up a, a quick talk about um, a large chunk of time is that there was a lot going on, um, despite what, what some think as, as a time, of once again, called the Dark Ages. We have this time of a lot of, of theological thinkers, a lot of, of big thinkers, but a lot of dark things going on, um, people not being able to agree, people separating. Um, but all in all, there is God moving through it, and he can be seen um, in that. So I, I appreciate your time, and I thank you. Um, if you would, bow your heads just for a moment of prayer. Uh, Father, I thank you so much um, for this opportunity. I thank you that we get uh, the chance to, to study the history that is behind us. I pray that um, we learned from it to, to move forward in you. In Jesus' name, amen.